0: Namaste. It's, of course, uh, a joy and a privilege uh, and it's a very happy thing to see uh, how we are getting more and more connected at another level uh, because of all this pandemic which is going on. Uh, a day must come, it will come, when we'll be connected at a still deeper level and uh, we can probably dispense with the use of any technology. Um, you know, two things or three things this uh, pandemic has brought uh, brought home to us. One is the fear of death, which is ingrained in human nature. The second is the fragility of human existence. And the third is the illusion of progress. I mean, there are many other things. And so far, we have been looking at this, uh, all these three questions about human existence, mainly from the outward point of view. But uh, there is a... Uh, inner dimension to it, which is what we are going to speak about. So, let me start with a little story. So, everything has gone away. Uh, here it has gone away. Yeah. So, um, so, let me start with a little story. And the story is about, uh, it's a well-known story. Uh, the story is from the Mahabharata when Yudhishthir confronts a yaksha, now, not going into the details of the story, the Yaksha asks many questions, and uh, uh, Yaksha is none else but Dharmaraj, the one who keeps the balance of the worlds, and is also the god of death. And at the end, there is a question which is asked of Yudhishthir, and the question is Kimasharyam, what is the most uh, uh, surprising thing in the world? And the answer that Yudhishthir gives is a cryptic answer, and he says that every day we see lot of people who are dying, but we ourselves, Believe that we are not going to die. Now this answer can be seen in two ways, as with many of these uh, mystic stories. One way is that, well, death is the reality of existence and we just don't acknowledge it. We don't understand it. It's like the last judgment on our life. And the other is that, well, death, regardless of death, there is within us an innate sense of immortality that we carry. And uh, we can look at it either way. So one is that on the surface, when we look at the phenomena of life, there is this constant disintegration, constant, uh, you know, uh, re of things. Death is a constant process of life actually. Even at the most material level we see it. At every level we see it. At the material level, at a psychological level. We can't advance uh, to the next level of our journey without dying. You know, the mystics know it very well if we want to advance to another level of consciousness, not just experience it, but permanently have a station there, then we need to die to the old. Of course, uh, Sraubhindo speaks about ultimately integrating all the levels. But to start with, if we uh, stay with the old consciousness, the new consciousness, no more there. So, uh, death is part of human existence at a psychological level, at the cosmic level, and of course at the physical level also, uh, within a lifetime, there are several times that we each cell dies. In fact, none of the cells are the same uh, as we grow older or shall I say wiser. I don't know. Sometimes the line is very thin between the two. So, so uh, this, this is a process. So, first thing we need to remember or understand is that death is not the opposite of life. It's a process of life. Another thing which we need to understand is that a lot, lot of times, you know, because death stares at our existence, we want to know about death, we want to know about life, we spend a lot of time in reading, debating, discussing. But as this virus has shown us something very interesting, the fragility of human existence. We don't know when we are going to die. So at one level, we can say that we have a lot, lot of time to live. At another level, we can say that we really don't know how soon and when. And when time is short, then we don't spend time in debating and discussing, but we spend time in knowing, experiencing, becoming, being. Uh, this is uh, what makes a difference between two categories of human beings. One who debate and discuss about uh, whether you know, there is something after death or not, and the other where they go ahead, they pierce through the veil and actually experience if there is a reality like that or not. And it makes a whole, whole lot of difference, you see. Um, we have a story of Hiranyakashipu and Prehla, a very symbolic story. It comes in the Bhagavad Purana and the Vishnu Purana. And uh, as the story goes, there are two ways that uh, these two gentlemen, father and son, they take on the challenge of life and the challenge of death. To uh, Hiranyakashipu, the way to conquer death is to remove all the conditions which create death. So, you know, he, he takes a near impossible boon that I shouldn't die in the morning, in, at night, inside, outside, below, above, all kinds of astra, shastra. So, he, this, this is the modern science, you know, this story is very symbolic, where we are trying to eliminate all the conditions of death. Now, even if we eliminate all the conditions, death finds its way and that is what the story beautifully brings home. But on the other hand, there is another approach and that approach is typified in the story of Prahlad. And the story of Prahlad, is he doesn't bother about life and death, but he bothers about one thing which alone is worth uh, discovering and it is the sense of the one. So for Prahlad, life is very simple and we can really lead such a beautiful and simple life. For him, life is an expression of the one, Hari, and for him, death is an expression of the one, Hari. Narayana, the one who dwells in man and one who is everywhere. And when we lead life like that, uh, the fear of death passes away because we discover the one consciousness behind each and everything. You see, this is the, and and it's something very urgent, we don't realize it. You know, I was speaking about shortage of time, so we have another very interesting story about life and death. And uh, I love to tell stories because they are a very beautiful, simple way of communicating profound truths. And this story also comes from the Bhagavad, where we have King Parikshit who has just about seven days to live. Now what does he do? Now, he tries again to lock himself up. He knows how he is going to die. So, he tries everything possible, you know, uh, call the ambulance, call the best doctors. He's the king, everything he can do. But he is given a very wise advice. And uh, the wise advice is that he says, king, death will find its way. So, what he should do? He says, you better discover the secret of immortality. So, Parikshit says that, is it possible? What is it? He says, very simple that, uh, you know, for seven days he listens to the story of Bhagavat, the story of Sri Krishna, which is of course, uh, apart from the fact that Sri Krishna is a living reality, but the Bhagavat is narrated in such a way that there is within the story running parallel to the story of Krishna, the story of the human soul, when it is born within the mind and ego complex and slowly it develops Faces the challenges as Krishna does. Eventually, it grows up to its fullness, defeats the ego self, and rediscovers itself on the, uh, on a cosmic plane in the battle of Kurushetra. So the essence of the whole thing is that when we have a shortage of time, and uh, even a one lifetime is very frankly just a fraction of a second, then the thing we must go straight to the mark is to discover that whether there is really a soul within us or not and that is what is beautiful about nachiketa the whole kattopnisha that he asks a very significant question a question which you know we should ask we should not worry about death exists or not or you know read all kinds of books because there is a whole uh, material science view of it and the material science view is a phenomenal view but uh, science itself knows that there are Truths behind phenomena, play of forces, energies, consciousness, of which at this point we have no clue. But straight away the question is, he says, that some say that after death nothing exists, but others say that there is something which is immortal within us and I would like to know the secret. And Yama says very cryptically that, well, even the gods do not know it. And the question is that why do gods do not know it? Well, gods have everything, but they don't have something which human beings have. And that something is soul. The little being described in the Upanishads very beautifully, Antaha sharire jyotirmayohi shubra, angushta matra purusha. That little being, no bigger than the thumb of man, which resides in the center, it is our true core. In fact, that is what we are. And once we discover it, the gods don't have it. In fact, no other plane of existence it is found. It is found only on earth embedded in the principle of matter that we find on earth. You know, that's why it is said that yoga can be done only in a body. See, while we talk about all the, uh, you know, going beyond and into the nirvanic silence, but it is very interesting that all traditions will tell us that progress, uh, discovery, you know, this is the Vedantic idea of evolution and the 84 lakh yoni spoken about in the tantra, that when we take different forms... Then while the forms disintegrate and we take a new form, forms disintegrate, we take a new form, we the essential me, but something is happening through this process. It's not just a blind destruction and taking up of life. Often we understand that rebirth is just a question of you know reward and punishment, but it's not about reward and punishment at all. That's a very human imposition on a far profound truth. Now as these forms disintegrate, the journey continues in another body. And we can take a very simple example that, you know, we take a vehicle, maybe a car or whatever else and we are going to some place and the vehicle breaks down in between. So does the journey cease? No. The The person who is journeying, the traveler, the eternal traveler steps out and he takes another car, he calls for another taxi or he finds another means. If nothing is there, he starts walking. So something similar happens after death that we… Get rid of this car. This car is the most gross vehicle. That's why it's called as a vehicle. Sometimes also called as a kosha. It's a dwelling house. It's not the householder. So this house, uh, obviously it has a certain life limit. And this tends to break down and disintegrate and the householder steps out. And then there are many layers. Uh, they are not just one vehicle. There are other vehicles, lighter vehicles. This is the gross vehicle. Then there are lighter and subtler vehicles of, of, of uh, made up of subtler substance, subtler energies and uh, you know finer states of matter. We can put it like that uh, more scientifically. And one after another, the soul travels through that. Now, the interesting part is that normally the difference between the gross and the subtle is the gross doesn't allow us to easily uh, escape or enter into these higher worlds. Uh, it's gross, it, it's very heavy. It ties us down, like binds us to this earth matter very with almost iron chains. But there is within this gross matter is subtler matter, something which can allow us to rise and ascend. Of course, yogis know about it while they are living and that's what we should aim at. But ordinarily, it's after death that we discover it. We, what do we discover? As many instances of near-death experience have shown us, and I'm not going into these details, uh, Paucity of time, I have mentioned that in the book, Death, Time, Beyond, that when we uh, discard the human sheath, we are, not, uh, we are not dead. The body disintegrates. So what happens to us? We discover another mode of existence. This is another way of life, another mode of living. Ordinarily, we don't know it. It's like a dream mode. We enter dream world, it's very different. The time space is very different. The means of communication are very different. The language is very different and we know nothing about it. So we see a dream, either a beautiful dream, when it ends we say, oh my God, why did it end? Or a nightmare and when we wake up and we say, oh, I am, we, we are, I am so happy that you know the whole nightmare ended. But there is a whole world of dreams. In the Upanishad we have this waking world and the dream world. Now, dream world is not just the dreams that we see, but rather a whole layers and layers of consciousness that form like a ladder. And we are not oriented to this world. We are completely disoriented and we somehow come back to the body but we can make it a very conscious process. After death, we are led through these subtle worlds, one after another, till we reach our very core, rediscover who we are, and that's bliss, of course, and uh, there is a period of little rest, assimilating rest, because all the life experiences, not in their outer details, but in their essence are gathered. It's important, because, uh, you know, it's uh, like... Take a simple example, even sometimes one-year life experiences, this pandemic experience, for example. One is the outer. Every day, the lockdown and distancing and all these masks we have to wear, the means of communication. But the essence of that experience, as someone would say, it's stress-inducing. Someone would say, well, it's an inward shift. Uh, Someone else would say, uh, it gave me an opportunity to rediscover myself. So the essence of the experience is what we carry. The details are left out because you see much after, maybe after 5 years, 6 years, 10 years down the line, we will forget all the details. That's why after death we forget many of these unnecessary things. But what we will remember at least in a lifetime is that well, when that happened, how human nature, how human consciousness responded, how I individually responded and that will be the take home point. Like there are people who during this period have intensified their spiritual aspiration and that becomes a take home point for, for us. So uh, when we leave the body, uh, many of these unnecessary things, um, I mean, they are like crust, not unnecessary really, but feeders to the core experience. Take another example that, you know, as a child, people go through difficult states. Um, let's say in a school, they, they, there was a teacher who was, uh, you know, uh, and they didn't have a good time, it was a rough time. Uh, so they were crying and, you know, wanting to avoid. But much later, this whole event and circumstances changes its value. And some of the students get back and say, thank you teacher, Uh, you were very tough, but it made us in the bargain uh, much stronger to meet life. Now, I am not advocating that teachers should be tough. I mean, there are gentler ways and more beautiful ways. But the point here is that the essence of an experience is very different than what we are going through on the surface consciousness. So we have the surface consciousness, which is the waking consciousness, the jagrat avastha, we have the sapna through which we travel and then there is the core, the Sushupti. And then of course we have that ultimate uh, uh, turiya in which all these are held together and we need not speak about it. So Susupti is the state where all the essence is extracted. And then we come back into life to restart the journey from where we left it undone. We have to finish many other evolutionary curves. We have to take on this great challenge of life which is actually an evolutionary challenge. It's not a threat, a stress or anything. If we trust that there is a divine presence within creation, we have to trust that there is a wisdom which is working. Now we can look at it as a crisis, we can look at it as a challenge. So death too is a challenge. And it comes wearing a terrible mask, disease comes wearing a terrible mask. But if we are afraid of it, then we have lost the challenge before trying it out. But instead, we should take on the challenge. And what is the best way to take on the challenge of death? Rip off the mask and ask, who are you? You know, we all, many of us have grown up with this... uh, Uh, Faith that there is a divine presence in life And frankly, what is life without this basic faith? I mean, if there is no divine presence I often say that the scientists There is no way you can confirm or affirm it Other than having experience So there are people who deny it Scientifically or logically or otherwise But then, even though they deny it Sometimes denial is a very convenient way Because it saves us the effort of discovering it It's not a belief, it's a first step towards discovering it. And frankly, when we deny it, then what is life all about? I mean, it's just dust somehow becoming man and neurons babbling inside a brain and we try to make sense of it. Certainly it is meaningless if you look at it from that point of view. But if there is a divine presence within, if there is a soul within, which we read in the scriptures, which mystics speak about, and if there is a path to find it, the path of yoga, we better search for it. See, so yoga is far beyond merely, you know, some some techniques and methods. They are all steps in the way. But the essence of yoga is to discover this wonderful divine presence as Prehla did, as many other did, and to live with that. Now, when we discover this divine presence, we enter into a state of oneness. Now, What is meant by oneness is that the sense of duality ceases to exist. So normally we have a slot and uh, we draw a line and we put on one side life, another side death, we pleasant, painful, good, bad, uh, virtue, wise and so on and so forth. Endless joy, sorrow, um, heat and cold and everything. All kinds of cognitive experiences. Now this is duality because you know, we, then we try to shun one and accept the other. In ignorance, it has a purpose. But when we discover oneness, then we discover that what we call as pain, what we call as pleasure, behind both, there is a deeper truth which is trying to express itself. And the truth is, as the Upanishad said, the delight of existence. The closer we come to the soul, the more we experience this wonderful joy and peace. Self-existence joy and peace. It is given to us. We don't need to ask from anyone. In fact, we have abundant to share with the whole world and still it will not cease to be because this joy draws its breath from infinity. Right now we are looking for finite ways and that's why death comes because we are uh, we experience life on the basis of finiteness. So there is limitation. But deep within is, is a birth, the, the soul within us, which actually comes from infinity. Deep inside it is connected to infinity. But it is experienced life in a finite way. How can it ever be happy? So, I mean, the soul of course is happy, but it's never satisfied with the experience. It wants more, more, more. And so life after life, it's trying to recapture this infinity in countless ways. Then a time comes. It's like, you know, outside we try to uh, amass wealth and we just think that... uh, uh, when you know people don't have much money so if you ask them how much you need they say just a little more when they have a little more they say well uh, maybe a little more and then it goes on and then even when everything is there then there is still that little more which is left because that little more is not outside us that little more is within us it's within our own soul And if we discover it, we open to infinity. We we inherit infinite love, infinite existence, infinite consciousness, infinite peace, infinite delight. Krishna, Shiva, Brahma, Vishnu, all these are various ways of expressing a deep profound truth. Krishna is infinite ananda, Shiva is infinite force. Brahma is infinite existence. Vishnu is infinite consciousness. And when the soul discovers it, then it has no more need for um, any um, outer things. Yes, they enrich life, but they are not really needed in that way. And second interesting thing is we stop putting things in slots. We discover that life and death are one single thing. They are not, in fact, there is no two things in this world, you know. Anuradha was reminding me some time back that this is the tenth day of the session. Well, tenth day and she said, what is the significance of the word ten? Well, the whole world from computer technology to the origin is a play of one and zero. And this one and zero is basically, if we remove the one, then world is zero. It's, you know, so people who speak about the world being futile and death being real, basically they have not discovered the one. Because yes, it is futile, it is uh, vain, it is zero in spite of everything. As I said, the fragility of human existence that stares at our face. But the day we add one to it, then the zero becomes ten. It is a number of fullness It brings us It completes the whole cycle But 0 to 10 We have to travel a whole journey We have to go 1, 2, 3, 4 So we first discover 1 So 0 is behind 1 is there So we make a distinction between World and God 0 we have to leave behind And 1 is here So we have the illusionist uh, You know idea of life That you know This world existence is vain Meaningless Discover the 1 Then we go to 2 We discover there is the soul and the ego Then we go to three, we discover that there is within the ego, the mind, life and body. Then we discover four, there is a fourth hidden plane of existence. Then we discover five, the very ultimate bliss that has built the world. And six, which is consciousness, which stands behind bliss, the divine mother of whom the consciousness force of whom this whole world is a wonderful expression. And then we discover seven, the sevenfold being, the Sachidananda through all the seven planes of existence. And then we discover eight. It is the higher hemisphere and the lower when they come together, then we have the perfection of life. It's it's a figure of infinity. Eight, you just put it uh, other way, it's infinite. And then we have nine. Nine is a return. You see, it is zero and one fusing in a strange way. So, one has come back. You see, sometimes these figures, I am talking of the English language, but it's so interesting that now we are... Returning back to the material plane, having discovered the two hemispheres and the infinity, and then there is a reversal. One is behind and zero is in front, so the meaning of zero changes. So that's some kind of divine mathematics, uh, as I say. And then, of course, there is 11 and 12, which completes the whole figure. So 11 is where we discover the oneness within us and everything else is an expression of the one. And 12 is, of course, the ultimate perfection. So this is... An approach to life Which frees us not only from fear of death But the reality of death When we discover this one Then death becomes unreal We can use the word death dies You see that story of Sphinx Where uh, Odysseus must travel Oedipus must travel through the desert Thebes and he encounters Sphinx And Sphinx is a strange creature With the body of a lion And wings of a bird And face of a woman Uh, and uh, she asks every traveler that, you know, answer my question. If you answer correctly, well, you survive. If you don't, you die. And everybody is confused. The question is, uh, who is the creature who walks on uh, four legs in the morning and uh, two in the afternoon and three in the evening? And uh, then Oedipus is the one who gives the answer, and he says, I am the answer. So this I, this constant I, outwardly we think this I is the ego self. But when we discover the soul within, we discover that behind this I, which was a shadow I, there is a true I. Now, uh, you know, very beautifully it is captured in one of Sri poems. I mean, I feel tempted to recount this story of the Sphinx. Uh, you know, religion is going into the background and science is in the front, forefront. And religion tells science that though I am going behind... You also must face the question of the Sphinx The Sphinx that waits for thee beside the way All questions thou mayest answer but one day Her questions shall await thee That reply for they who cannot die She slays them and their mangled bodies lie Upon the highways of eternity Therefore if thou wouldst live Answer first this one thing Who art thou in this dungeon laboring? So I think this is the first fundamental question, who am I? And everything, all other answers come from that. If I am an ephemeral existence, if I am just matter, if I am a bundle of neurons, if I am dust, then really speaking, uh, nothing else makes sense. One day I'll die like everybody else. But going through layers and layers of inquiry, we discover that there is within us an eternal, immortal self, and then then death dies for us. Now, what is this immortal self? Just quickly, how do we discover it? Now, where is its seed? Where is it located? Now, it's not located within the body, though we say that the soul is within the body. But the reality is, we can put it like that, that actually the soul is the master. It can attach to the body, it can detach itself from the body, and when there is a developed soul, the body is within the soul. You know, as Swami Vivekananda said so powerfully, I have spat this body. This is how the Upanishad says, Now this is the kind of development one can reach that we discovered that it's not the soul which is within the body but the body within the soul. But there is a seat from where we can access it and uh, whether we like it or not that seat is not so easy through the mind though we can access through many doors but through the heart. See very instinctively when we speak to people and say namaste just now we said Or even when sometimes we just put a hand over the heart and say hello We never put a hand over the head and say hello (laughs) So even when there is a gesture of reaching out it is midway Now this is the seat of the soul Very instinctively when people say I they refer to the heart This is where the soul resides if you want to put it like that This is the short route We can go through many routes But uh, this is the shortest route the path of love, as it is called, or we, you know, to this journey of love, we can add uh, a kind of process of interiorization. But how do we go within if we are tied with hundred bonds outside? You know, the story of uh, three men: a whole night they were rowing the boat, but it kept going round and round. It didn't budge at all. And in the morning, they were they were all drunk. They slept, and in the morning they got up. And the boatman came and they said, what kind of boat is this? Whole night I was rowing, nothing happened. And the boatman says, but you didn't take off the string from the, you know, <laughs> from the shore. You have to do that for the boat to advance. So much of our processes is like that, that we try to go within. We set aside half an hour, one hour practice. And then the rest of the day we, keep, uh, we do everything to tie the boat with many, many anchors. And so naturally we can't go within. So fundamentally we must learn, practice this bit of detachment from outer existence. And this detachment is not about outer renunciation as the Gita says, but an inner tyaga. We don't have to leave anything, but we have to change our relation with it. Our relation can be a very egoistic relation. This is me, this is mine. I possess it, I hold it. So then naturally one day the ropes will be cut and we'll feel pain. But those who are detached, they are freed from the pain of death. Why? Because, in fact, from all pain. Because they've lived their life like that, that this is today with me, tomorrow it'll pass into other hands. So, I must take care of things, of people, of relationships, you know, the famous Yagnabal that, you know, one does not love the wife for the sake of the wife, but for the sake of the self. One does not love the country for the sake of the country, but for the sake of the self. So… Our orientation changes. It's not me and mine, it belongs to the Lord. Isha, Vasya, Sarvam, all this is for the habitation of the Lord. Yat kincha jagatyam jagat, all that is individual motion within the universe. And it gives us a profound truth. So, by renouncing, thou wouldst enjoy. So, the first thing in life is, which is a paradox, life meets, you know, life is full of paradoxes. And in resolving these paradoxes, we discover the uh, secret, we solve the puzzle, the riddle, but we keep on saying either or, so that 's where we lose out on the real meaning. but this paradox can be resolved. Shevindtha puts it beautifully, life is a paradox with God for key, so now, how exactly we go about it that detachment from surface things, a certain degree of detachment now. What it is meant is not shunning anything outwardly but to change our relation. My love for country is not for my own sake just because I am born there but because this nation is required for a greater work and all nations have their own work to do. So there can be a very aggressive nationalism, a titanic kind and they can be a very devi kind of... Uh, nationalism where we look at country as a means to serve a larger um, purpose in humanity. And so also with the family, we can look at family as my own and possess them as, you know, be dominant over them or we can uh, understand that each member in our family is meant to express something of the divine. Let me create an environment, and atmosphere which is conducive for the person to grow. And the same way we can look at our own life as a means to achieve this, that, etc., etc., Or we can look at it much deeper that the value of all these so-called achievements lies in the fact that how much I have discovered myself, dropped off the ego self and discovered my true self. And this is the direction in which all our uh, journey must go. So first thing is detachment. The second very beautiful practice which helps is nishkam karma. We all know about it. When we do nishkam karma, then the gita says so beautifully when we live this life remembering that the divine alone is true then after we have uh, you know reached a point we uh, you know we are we are so free within that we remember the divine and we can be straight away lost into a state of freedom so it it in fact gives that injunction that live this life remembering the divine and so when the time comes to drop off the mortal sheaths the coils the outer body the house then we are not uh, worried or afraid because we have already discovered the one. So, uh, this practice of remembrance and offering everything to the divine is a way that we are trying to connect with the one truth. So, you see, this practice of discovering the soul is not just a technical process. It won't work only as a technique. But it's a package. So, when we are sitting and eating, am I eating only for the joy of the palate, well, pleasure of the palate is there. It's not that one has to mix everything, make a khichdi and eat. But at the same time, the food is an offering to the deity, divine within, and therefore it becomes prasad. That is the whole idea of going to a temple and receiving prasad. It's a symbol that whatever we receive in life, whether it be a material gift, whether it be food, annam, or it's anything else, relationship, everything is a gift of the divine and we receive it like this. Knowing fully well, keep the hands open. Don't let, don't close the hand. This is mine. The moment we do it like water slipping from our fingers or sunlight uh, changing into shadow, it will go away. So we need to live with this state that we receive as a gift. Don't close the hands uh, with gratitude in our, in our heart that everything comes as a gift from the Lord. We take it. Remember and offer is another beautiful doctrine. And the third practice which Gita speaks about is equanimity. So when we lead our life like that and then we engage into a process of interiorization where we go within, setting apart time every day, concentrating in the uh, center of the chest anywhere. It doesn't really matter. We, the divine is not a slave of a technique. He knows the secret intent in the heart of the seeker. All who ever found him, you know, take the name of anyone from Meera, Bhai, I've spoken about Prahlad to bhakta Dhruv, to many others, uh, countless surdas and uh, medieval saints, the entire uh, great masters, Sikh masters, Kabir and everybody. What was it? It was not so much about technique. Today we talk about it in this way. But they were burning with a fire to find. And how did they make this fire grow? Simply by the name of God. Naam as it is called of course i'm not going into the deeper understanding of nam but just the name of the name divine it it is the original vibration which is captured i mean the name what is really name foundation of eternity there is the original vibration which we cannot capture no human tongue can utter it but this original vibration manifests in certain bodies certain beings and their name becomes one with the name that name itself represents so we can take a mantra as a means to go within its mantra has that vibration or even simply krishna rama om namo bhagavate vasudevaya Sri arvindha sharanam mama ma mira Sharnam rama or simply ma omkar 100 thousand ways and if we take that as an aid and we live our life concentrated in the heart with a will to find that presence inside, that burning splendor, that immortality in the cloak of death, that eater of the honey, as the Kathopanishad puts it, that which which is like a swan, which can with one look distinguish the true from the false, that whose very nature is delight because it's the birth child, offspring of delight, offspring of immortality. So if we find it, then life is wonderful, and death is no more something frightening. But death is simply a passage, a step, a stride through which we pass towards immortality. Avidyam, mrityum vidyam, amritam So let me close with uh, some lines from Shri from Savitri. As I love to do, we know Savitri is uh, one of, you know, it's, it's the longest epic in English language, but uh, it is uh, an epic of 24,000 lines, which is marvelous. It's based on the story of Savitri and Satyavan, but Sri Aurobindo has put a whole cosmos within it, you know. Uh, everything that we need to know or understand is there. So I just read, um, just one page, on page 600-601, I'll not go into this... Uh, you know, it's deeper sense because otherwise uh, I'll forget time. But maya is a veil of the absolute. A truth occult has made this mighty world, the eternal's wisdom and self-knowledge act, in ignorant mind and in the body's steps. The inconscient is the superconscient sleep. An unintelligible intelligence invades creation's paradox profound. Spiritual thought is crammed in matter's forms. This is the original Veda which we need to discover. Unseen, it throws out a dumb energy and works a miracle by a machine. A machine called the body. All here is a mystery of contraries. Darkness, a magic of self-hidden light. Suffering, some secret rapture's tragic mask And death an instrument of perpetual life Although death walks beside us on life's road A dim bystander at the body's start And a last judgment on man's futile works Other is the riddle of its ambiguous face Death is a stair, a door, a stumbling stride This soul must take to cross from birth to birth a grey defeat, pregnant with victory. A whip to lash us towards a deathless state. The inconscient world is the spirit's self-made room, eternal night, shadow of eternal day. Night is not our beginning nor our end. She is the dark mother in whose womb we have hid. Safe from too swift waking to world pain, We came to her from a supernal light. By light we live and to the light we go. Uh, I'm going to answer this in a paradoxical way, not from a mystic point of view, but there was a book called uh, Illusions by Richard Bach. And (laughs) and as we know in the book, there is a very interesting line which is uh, said that if you are alive, your work is not over. So, you know, it's a paradoxical answer that at what point you decide you have to withdraw? Well, we don't decide. Those who have left themselves in the hands of the divine, they see, when the decision is made by the ego, either of, the, of living or of death, it's a, it's a false choice. I won't say the wrong choice. Wrong choice is something else. It's a false choice because it's made by something within us which is false by its very nature. But when we discover the the soul within, we also become aware of the divine will. So when we act in accordance with the divine will, A yogin may very well know, he becomes aware of the divine will operating in the cosmos, in creation. And so his decisions are not made based on the ego self. And we have the classic example of the Gita, where Arjuna is called upon to make a choice. He wants to make a choice based on the ego self to fight and then recoil also from the ego self. Because, you know, he will be the cause of this and that. But Krishna bids him to rise beyond both these standpoints and says that our work is to express the divine will. And isn't the divine will expressing itself in countless ways all the time which is a moment when we can say that the divine will has stopped expressing itself. So till our last breath we should express the divine will even a breathing should be an act of gratitude and love. Then a time comes when the divine will within us may be to withdraw to take on a new body a new way of challenge and then it should be done which is not euthanasia it's not running away from pain suffering work rather we should want to come back it. Thousand times, as the Srimad Bhagavatam says, come back a thousand times to serve. But this decision should not be made by the surface consciousness, by the ego self. If we do from the ego self, either to live or die, it's false. So it's not either or, but expressing the divine will, which we can know by coming in contact with the soul. Yes? Okay, so uh, first of all, uh, I very consciously corrected that. I said, is the symbol i said he it is a reality he is a reality already didn't use the word already but he is a reality but the story runs parallel also is a symbol it's true of most of the mystic stories like ramayana rama is a reality Reality, both of a physical world where Rama the incarnate came, Krishna the incarnate came, uh, and and Krishna is a reality whom none can deny. You know, um, uh, he's mentioned even historically. Krishna, for example, is mentioned in Mahabharata, Hari Vansh, Bhagavat Purana. He's mentioned in Chandogya Now, Krishna is. Also, you know, he has come, taken a human birth and lived his human exploit. But there is also the reality of Krishna which transcends. You know, he reveals in the Gita that I am Purushottama. I am the Lord beyond the Shara and Akshara. And then there is another reality of Shri Krishna that he is the indwelling divine within the heart of all creatures, Narayana, and whom we can discover. So, the, the story of Bhagavat and the story of Ramayana runs on several levels and we can see it at all these levels. Just to end with, the, you know, because um, uh, of the time, uh, one of the uh, kabirs, uh, Doha from Ramayana, not from Ramayana, but about Ramayana, he says, Ek Ram." So the avatar is also the one who is indwelling divine and he is also the one who is the cosmic being and is also the transcendent subsiniyara. So Krishna is all these and let me say much more than whatever human tongue can utter and whatever human souls can discover. He is the endless, fathomless, infinite delight he is always in the paramdham as well as he is always here upon earth and we can come in contact with him uh, that's all i would say <laughs> yeah 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 yes so that's a that's a very very valid question and i think I have already given enough hints uh, in the process. Now, as I said, it's not uh, something which can be immediately answered. Uh, I mean, it can be answered, but it's a long process. I have given hints. For those who are interested, please feel free to email me. My email is with Anuradha, to put it in a simple way. And uh, I would uh, be very happy to answer this question at any length. But the other part of it, you know, when Sri Krishna says, because this is often quoted, Gita and many of these scriptures are, we pick up a sentence. Now, if we really look at this particular statement, people have asked me that, well, is death real or not? Sri Krishna is saying, Jata Siddhruva Now, actually, Sri Krishna is beginning to develop an argument. Now, how does Arjuna approach him? He starts with the intellectual mind. So, he is replying to the intellectual that, well… That's how it is that one who is born dies. That's what we experience every day. So in that case, why are we really worried about death? You know, we, are, we should worry about something which doesn't happen and may happen in my life. So one who is born dies. And if that be the truth of existence, intellectually speaking, frankly speaking, I mean, we should not focus on death and means of, you know, how to really keep it away, but focus on life, how to live beautifully. And the whole gospel of Gita is about how to live beautifully, so much so that even if the next moment we were to drop dead on a battlefield, our life will still be worthwhile. So, Arjuna heard the Gita, Abhimanyu actually lived it if you really look at it like that so we have to look at this is the beginning of the argument this is not the end where does it end the grand culmination it ends on the mystery of oneness sarva dharmān parityajyā ekam raja. where śrī krishṇa is revealing himself in all his splendor and glory aham to'a sarva pāpe bhyo māsucha means the fear of death and all other fears I mean, vanish from the eyes of the one who has surrendered to the divine. So we go to that point, starts with jnana Yoga, karma Yoga and then Bhakti Yoga and in this grand culmination. Uh, so this is only one part, the beginning of the whole gospel. But we have to see where it leads us. It leads us to infinity. Okay? Thank you. Oh, okay. So, uh, again, the detailed answer I have given in several places, oroma.org, there is a whole talk on Sherbindo's Mahasamadhi. But, so I'll not go into all the details, but to put it very simply, one, death as we understand is the death of the body. But death as a yogin understand doesn't exist because he has discovered the consciousness of immortality. I'm glad for bringing out this question. So both Sherbindo and the mother, mother describes it categorically. And Sherbindo in Savitri describes his steps into a place where one could not even breathe, there is no breath, there is no heartbeat and very consciously has entered into that domain of death and the mother of course is described at least uh, twice when she completely what is called as even death of the body that has happened and she has come back. So they had both experienced death and the consciousness of immortality of course and the consciousness of infinite which the Vedic and the Upanishadic seers sought after because they were after the truth of immortality. But what was not yet achieved was the immortality of the body, which is a thing very different from immortality. We speak about immortality as uh, the body's immortality. That's the last and crowning thing in a whole series of events. And Sri withdrawal, to put it very simply, a very conscious decision, was to hasten, ultimate victory or the achievement of immortality of the very body. So his, what we call his death, like you know, uh, Sri Krishna's withdrawal from Vrindavan, it released upon earth pangs of bhakti which we don't find in the Vedas and the Upanishads. They are hinted but not found. But the moment Krishna goes away from this, uh, from one we see that human heart is filled with bhakti. Why? Because it misses the Godhead whose touch it has felt. So, Srivindo's and the mother's withdrawal, if I may add, is precisely to prepare humanity to reach that point. to to become worthy of receiving that great gift that they want to give us. But physical immortality, isolated physical immortality was never Sri aim and uh, he also said that that is not possible uh, at the most gross physical level. Subtle physical levels, yes, which is what he and the mother have stationed themselves at. But physical immortality at the most outer physical means conquest over all the laws of material existence which govern our physical constitution. Now that for that, a certain degree of humanity, a certain number, if I may say so, have to be ready. And that is the process which is going on. Already man's mind is turning in that direction. And so we have to wait for that last act in the great drama. The last act of Shirabindo's and the mother's life, the last scene, if I may say so, does not close on 5th December 1950 or 17th November 1973. It's the beginning of book two and uh, in which we have to play a major part and with th- th- with them in the background directing the whole play so there will be the book 3 where we will the two will meet and man himself physically will taste immortality so this is nutshell but details you will find on aroma.org all about shrivindas withdrawal the mother's withdrawal and everything else okay yeah okay okay So, uh, maybe, you know, paucity of time, we will probably, maybe, if possible, uh, keep it as the last question. And uh, welcome to write and, as I said, uh, check with the website. But coming to the question, first, the Buddhist question, which speaks about no soul, uh, but of the permanent. So, anatma of the Buddha is not about that there is no divine reality. He didn't use the word, he didn't believe in metaphysical speculations. And quite rightly, because we end up, you know, creating a whole uh, philosophy around it Rather than living the experience. So, Buddha is right in his own way that he refused to discuss metaphysical questions but showed a way to discover the permanent. I think as to individual soul, there has always been these two kinds of doctrines. One is about the multiplicity of soul. Even in pure Advaita, it is there. There is nothing like an individual soul. But if you read Vesistha and you take to Dvaita Advaita, advaita you, you discover that there is a, uh, you know, a reality of multiplicity of soul. Basically coming from Sankhya, the Gita endorses it, Srivabindu endorses it. Now, the thing is, take, take very logically, if there is no individual soul, frankly, there is no yoga. What do we do? Who is doing the yoga? Who is bound? Who is free? Why put any effort? So, you know, the whole thing is an absurdity and the whole argument collapses. That's, that's a very, maybe a very summary way of putting it, but, you know, uh, intellectually. Because I went through all these questions myself when in my medical college. <laughs> Why yoga? Why put all this effort? If there is nothing individual, that was the time I was reading through all these scriptures and all these things. Uh, well, I was reading medicine also, just, you know, so that people don't think. <laughs> so, this is one part of it. Second is, yes, how do we know that soul is of this size or that size? By seeing it so all the yogis what their name have said that metaphysical speculations so or metaphysical understanding is purely an intellectual exercise we may or may not need it there are people i know who have felt their soul touch without understanding a word about it so while because we are intellectuals or uh, you know uh, mental beings we need to have a framework it's 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 human Uh, concession given to man but we don't need to shift from physical to metaphysical we need to shift from the physical to the real and this not to say that the physical is unreal but it is to say that the the physical is an instrument of the real how do we do it and that's what we have just hinted upon first important thing is to want it if all our life we are wanting this and that and hundred things and one day we wake up, when, you know, it's post-retirement, then let me find out about my soul, probably it's too late. Uh, maybe Yamraj will come and show us the soul because, you know, that's one way to discover the soul. But when we are young, when we are full of energy, and by young I don't mean in age, age is not a number, but young means we are wanting to progress. We want to, we have the urge, you know, there are yogis who at 73 have realized the divine. And Sri Ramakrishna says and the mother testifies it needs three days of concentrated effort. That's all that is required. We must burn with this fire that I want to find my soul. It must be like the great... um, the bird with its wings hovering over us all the time, whether we eat, sleep, meet, but we are all the time lost in these multiple identities. I am, I belong to this religion, as I said. I am a Buddhist. I am a practicing Hindu. I am a Muslim. I am Christian, and I am a non-believer. This is also an identity. I am an atheist. I am a theist. All these identities. I am a German, French, Indian, um, American white black all these false identities of the ego i'm a surname i'm a doctor i'm engineer when we get rid of all these then we have an opportunity to discover that which is within us who assumes countless names and form and actually if you believe in the doctrine of rebirth then we have to bring in the individual soul if there is no rebirth what is reborn buddhism does believe in rebirth so what comes back of course i am aware that it talks about the stream of river passing through the bed is the same but but in that case there is one consciousness experiencing all this then we don't have to worry about it Neither papa nor Punya Because there is no individual soul Which is experiencing it But if we do believe in the doctrine of rebirth As enunciated in the Gita As enunciated in some other schools of thought As of course enunciated by Sri and the mother Then spontaneously it becomes a great need It should become a burning If I may use the word desire Though desire doesn't apply here An aspiration I must find it Doesn't matter We may be walking, sitting Sitting in the bathroom Uh, We may be reading a book We may be engaged in any act I must find my soul Then one day Because of this intense aspiration Our whole nature, consciousness Becomes one block like a laser And it cuts through the layers And we discover What was always there But it won't come by any amount of You know, intellectual thinking This is the saying of all the wise And I can only add to that That yes, it's so very true That Intellectual speculation are all right at a point of time. That's how I started the whole thing. But at another point of time, we should not stop there and go into the discovery. I have hinted at some of the processes, but we must remember that uh, the eagerness with which we want to find the divine within. Finding the divine within, we will have to discover the soul. It's a process. Uh, it's, It's like the gate through which we pass the divine is equally and much more eager to hold us. So we, we, we are very much helped and supported in the way. Of course, if we have an outer guru, wonderful. But even if we don't have, there is this inner guru who wants us to discover him. So we must know in this journey we are not alone. And if we live with this faith and we offer everything to him who is within us, The Narayana, the Vasudeva, then he also, actually he has taken a number of steps already before we begin to feel the need. Somebody asked me, what is bhakti? Why does the divine want us to have bhakti? And I said, well, divine doesn't want us to have bhakti. Divine loves us and a little bit of this love springs further. It's like, you know, that great Niagara when the whole water falls. It splashes on our face. So, from the human consciousness in response to this divine love, which is laboring since matter was formed or even before that, something splashes up towards the source and that is bhakti. So, this is how, these are some of the hints. Bhakti is the shortest way, surrender is the shortest way and it requires a leap of courage and faith. But, uh, as I said, a detailed discussion may not be possible. Okay. The thank you, Anuradha. And first of all, about the audience, I very much sensed it. That is why all this flowed. Because, as Kathopanishad says, where there is a seeker and a person who can share the wisdom, that's when there is delight is born. So, uh, definitely, I sense that. Um, my final words are that for a long time we have speculated upon these mysteries. Uh, we, especially in India, and uh, world over, people who believe in some kind of spirituality they um, they do believe that these things are there, but let it not remain just a intellectual thing let us Let us uh, not just end with speculation and debate and discussion; let us go straight to the heart of it and discover it now, in this discovery, I want to make a little distinction between technique processes which are there and they have their own uh, place and uh, and 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 role to play but The divine within is free, infinite. He is beyond all that we do and do not do. And if we can lean upon the divine, if we can trust the divine that he is also eager to reveal to us, and if we can turn to him sincerely with help, doesn't matter what name form, that you are there and if you are there, if that wisdom is there, help me find my soul. We will be assisted. So, technique processes are alright, but it can be done without them. Or with them, the ultimate thing, the, the real thing is and core thing is aspiration for discovery of the soul, aspiration for discovery of the divine, for the one, doesn't matter what name we call it. And based on the sincerity of the aspiration, the response comes from the one who is also infinite. If my aspiration is only for some peace, peace will come. If my aspiration is to get free from suffering, I'll get free from suffering and probably find the silence of the nirvana. If my aspiration is to be in a state of delight all the time, every moment, I'll discover the delight which is behind. And if my aspiration is to be all the time in a state of union and communion with the divine, to dwell within him and to see him in all creatures, this faith and will, aspiration, will Help me to in the end realize the divine presence in all things and be in a constant state of dwelling in the divine which will be a most wonderful and beatific state. So aspiration and faith or we can put it as will and faith are the great secret and when we top it, crown it with surrender then there is nothing impossible. Thank you so much.